Well, as I said before, today is Palm Sunday. Millions of Christians around the globe are celebrating Christ as King. And so that question then naturally rolls into how do we enter his kingdom? How do we get right relationship with God? And so this passage then is an example for us. It's fleshing out for us how one does and then how one does not enter the kingdom of which Christ is the king. Now, quite frankly, to to sort of uh, get to the punchline, I believe this passage very clearly demonstrates or fleshes out the doctrine of justification by faith. As Martin Luther once said, justification by faith is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. How we are made right and declared righteous in the sight of God, the answer to that question depends on whether or not we are a Christian church. And so Jesus initially sets forward children, or children come to him. And we do this every week. And so thankfully, our our custom and habit here enables me to preach these verses very briefly. They were bringing children to Jesus. And the disciples, operating out of the cultural mindset of their day, thought children were unimportant. We talked about this last week, how they really did represent in that culture just the the people on the periphery. You know, they they were a blessing to have because they they ensured the continuance of your family name. But you didn't romanticize children. No one there thought childhood was a good thing. It's something you get kids out of into adulthood. And children were not really that important. And so, when Jesus is approached by parents with their children, the disciples are, come on, Jesus is a busy guy. And yet Jesus gets indignant. The only place where this word is used, indignant, he is, he's offended, he's incensed. This isn't Jesus meek and mild, doe-eyed, you know, holding a lamb. He's irate at his disciples and their repeated hardness of heart. Do not hinder them, for to such as these belongs the kingdom of God. And then he issues the statement, if anyone does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, he can't have the kingdom at all. Now many have over the years tried to say, oh, it's, we have to have their innocence. No, children are not innocent. Any parent can tell you this, right? I did not teach my children to lie. I, I mean, as soon as a child is capable of expressing its will, it does so in ways that are patently selfish and self-seeking, okay? It's not innocence. It's not the cute smell of a newborn. No, Jesus is driving home what we have a problem with. And that is our own unimportance. Children in the cultural mindset of the day had nothing to offer. If you're seeking to make a name for yourself, children aren't going to contribute to your own enhancement. 
Now, nowadays things have changed. Politicians love getting their pictures taken with a little child. I mean, even Papa Joe liked taking his picture with child, with children. But back in the day, that was not the case. Children are just bundles of need. Look at your cute little infant that you have, your cute little grandson, granddaughter, son, daughter, whatever. They vomit. They go to the bathroom. They get you up in the middle of the night. I mean, it is 100% making deposits into this child, and you're not getting any return. They are bundles of need. And they're dependent upon you for everything. Yes, a little child may scream and cry that it wants food, but if you don't give it the food, it will die. If you don't change it, it will chafe in its own mess until it's bleeding. Right? They are dependent upon you for everything. And this quality is how we have to see ourselves. That when we come to God, we must be self-aware that we bring nothing to the table. And that everything we need has to be given to us. We are utterly dependent. So he holds children up as a model for what we must be like to inherit the kingdom of God. Now how do I know for sure that this is what Jesus is going to drive home about? Well, because he goes on in verse 27 to talk about the impossibility of people being saved on their own. After Jesus says that it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom, the disciples understand the implications and they say, well, how can anyone be saved? With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now, there are people who do not like the notion that we are utterly dependent Surely, there's something that I can do to get myself into the kingdom. Surely, I can weasel my way in. I can burrow my way in. I can do something to get in. And you see that trend in the historical fiction that has developed over the centuries and how this passage is interpreted. Jesus says in verse 25 that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Raise your hand if you've ever heard that what it's talking about is a camel going through this really narrow gate. Okay? What you heard, this is going to be hard, was an untruth. That story wasn't invented until about a thousand years ago. Okay? There is no such record of that kind of a gate. There's no archaeological evidence for that kind of a gate. And if you think about it, the presence of that gate would completely undermine what Jesus is talking about here. You see, in the story of the, of the supposed needle gate, there's a side gate constructed in the walls of Jerusalem that would enable a camel to get in only if it took off its burden and, and sort of got down and worked its way through. The idea being that you want to prevent an army from being able to swarm through your gates. Okay? Well, first of all, for at least 300 years before the time of this, the main conquering armies were using horses, not camels, and a horse could fit through something a camel can't. But still, the point was that a camel could get through. It just was tedious. 
frankly, unburdening the camel and getting, it, it wasn't particularly hard. It was just time-consuming and inconvenient. But it could happen. Now notice how that contrasts with Jesus saying it's impossible. If it's impossible, that's profoundly different than just hard. And then, oh yeah, we have rabbinical Talmuds from Babylon where they were already using things like an elephant through the eye of a needle. The point is, the biggest animal you can imagine through the smallest hole that they had exposure to. Impossible. Impossible. This is where we get the understanding that if we are to be saved, it is by a work of God. Because with man, it is impossible. And so there are two great obstacles that many people face to coming to Christ. The first is their credentials, and the second is their commitments. Their credentials. We think that we are something, that we have attained something, that there is something in us that we have accomplished that will somehow get us in the door. And that's what this rich man does. He comes up to Jesus. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, He's, in all three of those, he's identified as being rich. Matthew identifies him further as being young. And Luke identifies him as being a ruler, a member of the aristocracy class. So in your Bible, it probably says the rich young ruler. In other words, he's a person that has every conceivable social advantage. But there's something missing. He comes up to Jesus. What must I do? To inherit eternal life. And see, the problem with relying upon your credentials, what he's attained or done, is it always comes down to a relativized understanding of what constitutes right behavior in the sight of God. Good teacher. Now, this was kind of shocking in that culture because most conservative Orthodox Jews understood that only God was good. And so they didn't really uh, go up to their rabbis and call them good. But Jesus immediately gets this guy's number and he understands that he's operating out of a faulty, lowered understanding of goodness. And so he, calls, he questions the guy. Why are you calling me good? Only God is good. So that leaves you with one of two choices. Either you don't know what good is or, or, or I'm God. One of the two. And the guy, he says, well, what do I have to do Jesus says, okay, you're talking about doing, so let me show you what you have to do. You know the commandments. And he lists out the second table of the Ten Commandments, all of the duties that man owes to our fellow man. These I've kept from my youth. He's confident. Now we do know, based upon the Greek construction of I kept these from my youth, he's making reference to his bar mitzvah. The cultural tradition that the Jews invented for themselves, it's not decreed by God. They just invented it. And the key to a bar mitzvah was, it means son of the commandment. It was when a Jew was taking upon himself the obligation to keep the law. As if God's commandments aren't obligatory upon you at all times. But anyway, whatever. They had invented this standard. And I've kept this standard ever since I took it upon myself. And yet, something was lacking. Something, like an itch he couldn't scratch, 
was lacking, which is why he came to Jesus in the first place. There's something missing. What, what more do I have to do? And so when Jesus questions him about the law, don't murder. Well, I've done that. Too bad the man hadn't heard the Sermon on the Mount. To understand that behind each commandment is an eternal truth about your heart. It's easy to say, I've never killed anybody. I mean, I've been a wager most of us could say, I've never murdered anybody. Most of us could say, I've never stolen from somebody. Most of us could say, I've never, you know, uh, committed fraud. Most of us. But that, under, that underscores a weak understanding of what God requires. You see, God requires absolute perfection, not culturally contrived, relativized goodness. God made two covenants in history that overarch human course of affairs. There's a covenant of works made with Adam and all who are in Adam. And the covenant of works is written on our heart. It's what drives every impulse that if I do good, I will be accepted. And so, God sets his standard, perfection. And we try and we try and we, oh, if I do, if I can only do, do, do. The problem is you're not perfect. You have sinned. And so in the final analysis, when we stand before God, we will be judged on our goodness. Have you been perfect? Have you kept the covenant of works? And the answer for every single one of us will be a resounding no. All we have is relativized, culturally contrived notions of goodness. But God sent his son to keep the law for us, to be perfect for us. And what we have that we celebrate next week Resurrection Sunday, is that Jesus took our sins to the cross, that he might bear the penalty we deserve, that we could then get all the goodness that he had procured. And so there's this great exchange, Christ's righteousness for our sin. So when we stand before God, God looks at us as perfect because we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. But you will never see that if you're focused on just doing things. And Jesus knows you're seeking God. You are. That's why it says he loved him. His heart went out for him. He wasn't some foaming at the mouth Pharisee who was trying to find fault. But he was misconstruing goodness. Thinking that it was something he could do, that there was just one more thing he could pile onto his law keeping to be right before God. And Jesus wants to refocus his eyes and say, No, it's not about your doing, it's about the orientation of your heart. And this points to the fact that our commitments can be a great hurdle. Jesus gives him a command that he doesn't give anyone else in the Bible. So there are some who may think that what Jesus is calling everyone to do here is to go sell everything. Recognize Jesus doesn't give this command to anyone else in the Bible. He gives it to him because he's making a point, not about money, 
per se, but about the condition and orientation and focus of his heart. He tells him, you lack one thing, but then he tells him to go do four things. Go, sell all your possessions, give to the poor, and come follow me. So he's lacking one thing that needs to be met, and it will be met by doing these four things. And of course, the man is deeply grieved. Why? Because it says he had great possessions. There are some people who preach this passage, and I believe they mistakenly think that he was trusting in his possessions. That's the language we use. He was trusting in his possessions. No, he wasn't trusting in his possessions. If anything, he was trusting in his goodness. You know what his, effect, his, his, his possessions did have on him? It had the control of his heart. He loved his possessions. His possessions were precious to him. His possessions were so important to him that even though his mind was filled with a whole bunch of other important things, obtaining eternal life, which was the question that drove him to Jesus in the first place, at the end of the day, when there was a perceived threat to the one thing that was most precious to him, he had to back away. He had to back away because nothing can hurt my precious. Oh, how many of us have that one thing in our life? Your heart has a throne and something is seating on it. Your heart never, ever, ever goes without an occupant on the throne that is in it. Something. And whatever it is, it will distract you from the kingdom or it is the king of the kingdom. The great thing about having the king of the kingdom on your heart is that no matter what the Christian life calls you to give up, you will construe it as having given up nothing. Which is why Jesus says, you know what? Everyone who gives up mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and houses and land will get back a hundredfold in this life. Now wait, how do you get back a hundredfold your, if you've given up your mom? You get a hundred moms back? Is that what it's saying? No, don't think that this is saying that if you give a dollar in the offering plate, you're going to get ten dollars mysteriously showing up in the mail. That's not what it means. Okay, You don't give up one mom and get a hundred moms back in a literal sense. What does Jesus say back in Mark chapter 6 about those who are his brothers and sisters and family? Those who do the will of his Father. There are people who make great sacrifices for the kingdom, but the great truth is that you are brought into a family, a fellowship, where people bear your burdens and care about you, and you are filled with the Spirit, so that no matter what you've given up, you'll be like Hudson Taylor, who after 50 years of misery in China, his wife dies of malaria, is able to say, I never made a sacrifice. But yet, if there's a thing on your heart, on the throne that is in your heart, and that'll count, you, you, you'll, you'll refuse the king because he's a threat to your own security. So, don't trust in your credentials. Don't be distracted by your commitments. 
Instead, recognize that like children, we must come to him with all of our need to receive what only he can give. And then in him, we find that we get everything, everything back to us. That's the great news of the kingdom and how we enter it. Let's pray.